Father, we come to you this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus, to bring you all blessing and honor and glory because you're worthy. You're worthy. Father, we stand in this place and it's our ambition to cause your name to be remembered because you have caused our sin to be forgotten. In your grace and your kindness and your mercy, you sent us your son, Jesus Christ, to a people who were decidedly unworthy. Unworthy because of sin. Unworthy because of our rebellion. Unworthy because of our hard-heartedness, because we had turned our backs against you to chase the things of this world. But you chased us. You did not leave us to die in our sin, in eternity past. You foreknew us. You called us. And you set us apart and you adopted us as your own sons and daughters. God, this is a goodness that we can't even begin to fathom, but we just stand here today to tell you that you're worthy because you are. So, fathers, we come to your word this morning. We ask that you would use it to search us, to show us what's not of you. Father, to show us the beauty of who your son Jesus is, that we would lay down the superficial chains of religion to walk in the supernatural power of your resurrection. So Lord, would that message fall fresh on our hearts this morning? Would we yield ourselves completely to you now? Father, meet with us today as we open your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead uh, and have a seat as we begin here this morning. And as you find your seats, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, uh, Matthew chapter 23. We're going to be looking today at verses 1 through 12. But uh, before we just dive right into things this morning, I want to take just one more moment uh, to celebrate the week that was. So Easter 2021 within our church family, by the numbers, uh, three worship gatherings last week. We were joined by uh, nearly 800 adults and children for worship last week. We had, uh, as far as we're aware, at least 130 people serving and ministry teams all across the building, connected with dozens of first-time guests, brand new families, uh, many from outside of our church. Uh, But most importantly, as we saw in that video earlier, we celebrate 15 who publicly professed faith in Jesus Christ last week through baptism. Can we celebrate that one more time uh, this morning as we begin our time of worship today? You know, even as we celebrate, it's important to continue moving forward with caution. Because uh, as we see throughout the testimony of God's word, as we've seen throughout the history of the church, as we're going to see as we open God's word today, it is entirely possible for a church, it's entirely possible for a congregation, it's entirely possible for a culture of religious people to have on the outside all of the external appearances of life, but internally be dead in our sins. And this was the case with the religious culture during the time of Jesus. During the time of Jesus, two uh, prominent religious leadership groups had arised. It was, uh, one was the scribes who were experts in knowing the Old Testament law and had it memorized, committed it to heart. There were also the Pharisees who were more uh, theological in their thinking, and their desire was to apply the word of God from the law to the everyday situations of life. And so these two groups emerged during what we know as the intertestamental period. This was 
the period of time uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, about a 400-year history. And this uh, really follows the end of the ministry of Nehemiah, which we finished studying two weeks ago, to the coming of Christ. During that time, the empires that were emerging and, and reigning and trading off across the scene of history, beginning with the Persians. Uh, the Persians were followed by the Greeks. Then the Greeks, uh, for a period of time, they were followed by a brief period of Jewish independence under uh, the reign of the Maccabees. And then the Maccabees eventually were followed by the reign of the Romans. And it was during this period of time, uh, when Alexander the Great in particular was ruling, that the process of Hellenization, of imposing Greek culture, was taking place all over the globe. And during that period of time, uh, the Jewish culture was becoming increasingly secularized as a result of that process of Hellenization. So out of fear that Jewish faith and life and culture were being corrupted, you had groups like the scribes and the Pharisees that emerged onto the scene out of a desire to preserve Jewish life, heritage, and culture. So this started as a very pure desire. But over time, what started to happen is uh, as they interpreted the law and as they tried to apply it to everyday life, they began to see their interpretations of the law and the various applications of the law, which were man-made as being equally authoritative with the word of God. And what this did is it bred this stiff culture of religious fundamentalism and self-righteousness of toxic faith, whereby the measure of maturity was your ability to keep up with all of the man-centered rules. And so it created this toxic culture of fundamentalism and religious legalism. I put this in your notes this morning. I think uh, Warren Wiersbe has said so very well, and this sets up where we're going to go today, that one of the tragedies of legalism is that it gives the appearance of spiritual maturity when in reality it leads the believer back to a second childhood. A part of the deception of religious legalism is that it always paints itself to be the single exclusive path of righteousness and holiness. Legalists always believe they are the most mature people in the room. But what's happened is their self-righteousness has caused them to lose any sense of self-awareness. And what they don't recognize is they're actually still in their legalism, spiritual toddlers in a room full of spiritual adults. And it's very, very difficult to speak into that culture because when someone has set themselves apart, our church has set itself apart, a leader has set itself apart, we as followers of Jesus set ourselves apart as the exclusive standard of righteousness, we always think we're the smartest people in the room. We always think we're the people who know the best about the word of God. We always think we're the ones who know best how to apply it. And we make ourselves the measure of true righteousness. But this is unrighteousness. Because our righteousness church does not come horizontally by looking at each other, it comes vertically by looking at Christ. And what had been lost sight of in this culture and what we're losing sight of, I think in many ways in our culture today, was understanding where our true source of righteousness comes from. So as we dive into Matthew 23, just to help set it in its context a little bit, uh, this is happening in the final week of the life of Jesus. He has ridden triumphantly into Jerusalem. He's overturned, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, the tables of the money changers in the temple. He's cleansed the temple. And for a few chapters, he speaks to the crowds and he speaks to the religious leaders in parables. He would tell these stories, and they were stories of condemnation against the religious leaders, but he wasn't speaking to them directly. It was more, uh, tell the story, and you just sort of find yourself in the story and see if you can put two and two together. But then in Matthew chapter 23, y'all, the gloves come off. 
And Jesus is no longer going to talk about the Pharisees. He's going to talk directly and publicly to the Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces his seven woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, A woe is a statement of judgment. It's a statement of condemnation that's born out of a deep sense of grief and mourning and lament over something broken that has taken place. But before he begins pronouncing those woes, he really gives us an introduction into who the scribes and the Pharisees were, uh, which is the picture that we're going to look at this morning. And here's why we're going to spend six weeks studying this single chapter of the Bible. Because over the last 10, 15 years, there has been a new form of of toxic legalism and fundamentalism that's been taking over in our culture. And there's three markers of this. This isn't in your notes, but I encourage you to write this down this morning. There's three markers of this new legalism that I think we need to pay very close attention to and have discerning eyes and ears. The new legalism tends, like the old legalism, to be deeply biblical. I mean, it knows the word of God. Like most movements of toxic fundamentalism, it knows the word of God inside and out. It would hold the word of God above everything else. It knows the Bible. It knows doctrine. It knows theology. And this is a good thing because we need to know these things. The second marker is that it tends to be deeply political. Now, this does not have to be a bad thing. We've talked about this a lot over the last year, just in light of everything that's been happening in our world. It is okay, I think, encouraged as followers of Jesus that we be engaged in the political process so long as we keep our political engagement in balance with our identity as followers of Jesus. And we remember that we are first and foremost uh, heavenly citizens and not earthly citizens. We always have to keep that perspective. So that doesn't have to be a bad thing. Here's where it gets off base. In addition to being deeply biblical and deeply political, Like the Pharisees of the time of Jesus, it's also deeply hateful. In the name of upholding the word of God, in the name of trying to rescue Christian culture and heritage from an increasingly secularized world, it's arrogant, it's condescending, it calls names, it desecrates the image of God and man, it disrespects human beings, it will malign the names of faithful followers of Christ. And so make no mistake this morning, church, while the new legalism and fundamentalism, while on the outside it looks like righteousness and holiness, internally it is totally godless. And so we need to return to understanding what is our true source of righteousness so that you and I too can be on guard against the religious pride that can build up in our hearts that will lead us to ignore and justify our own sin that we're committing in the name of trying to preserve the church because it's not justified as we see the word of God. So here's going to be our approach this morning. Uh, When I was uh, a junior up at Liberty, I was uh, a Bible college student and uh, notorious class at Liberty, Bible 350. Uh, He had one project in the whole class and it was to write a commentary on the book of the Bible. So my class, uh, we wrote a commentary in the book of Jude. It had to be a minimum of 50 pages. This was like your only grade for the whole semester. Uh, so very first day class, Dr. Michael O'Brien, uh, just a man who, who instilled within me just a deep love for the word of God. This is what he said. He goes, I'm going to tell you how to fail this class. He goes, it's pretty simple. He was like, uh, number one, don't come to class because I'm going to show you in class, I'm going to give you explicit instruction on how to successfully do this project. He was like, so first way to fail, don't come to class. He was like, because the small portion of your grade is class participation. He said, second way to fail this class, don't do your project. He was like, this is like your only grade all semester long. So it's pretty simple. If you don't come to class and you don't do your project, you're not going to pass. And of course, he told us how to fail the class in hopes that we would not fail the class. So I've just titled this message this morning simply, How to Become a Pharisee, with the intention, of course, being that we will not become Pharisees. 
that we will not become those who are overtaken by religious legalism, by toxic fundamentalism, because these are the things ultimately that lead us to become enemies of Jesus. And I think we would all agree we don't want to be that. Amen? So let's just look at the Word of God here for just a moment, a few pieces of info of how it is we can become uh, Pharisees. So Matthew chapter 23, let's read it first, verses 1 through 3. It said, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. So first mark this morning, how to become a Pharisee. It's pretty simple. Don't practice what you preach. Be a person who preaches, but not a person who practices. This is a warning here for us against hypocrisy. Again, the scribes were the interpreters of the law. The Pharisees were the theologians who addressed the various questions that the law raised. So for example, the law would say, don't work on the Sabbath. Very clear principle, very clear instruction. What the Pharisees would then try to do was determine how many steps you were allowed to take on the Sabbath before it was considered work. That's okay to try to apply the word of God, like how, how far should we go before we're in violation against God's word? But the problem is they would take that standard, that man-made standard of how many steps you could take, and they would give it equal weight and authority to the word of God itself. So so essentially they're adding to the word their own man-made standards and principles uh, out of a good desire to keep the people from falling into sin, but in a sinful way, uh, equating it with the word of God. And so we're told here of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says they sit in the seat of Moses. Now this was uh, a figurative thing and it was a literal thing. It was figurative in that the Old Testament law was given by God uh, to Moses to be delivered to the people. And so this was the work of the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, was to deliver the word, uh, the, the, the law the Lord had given to Moses to the people. Uh, but it was also literal because in the synagogue, uh, there was a place from which they sat to be able to share. Jesus sat down when he taught, the Pharisees did. I don't, guys, because I'm just too hyper for that. I'm just going to keep it real with you. I can't, can't sit down and teach at the same time. So they would sit down and they would teach from the Old Testament to the people the law of God. So you can think of this almost as a chair, a department head at a university, someone who is a chairman of the board. They sat in the chair. They sat in the seat of Moses. So Jesus tells the people they're teaching the law. The problem is not that they're teaching sound doctrine. The issue with the Pharisees wasn't that they, uh, the problem wasn't that they didn't know the word. The problem was that they didn't do the word. That this is theologically what we call the difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is about us having sound doctrine right biblical teaching, which we should be after, but scripture also compels us to orthopraxy, which is not just knowing the word, but living the word and doing the word. This is how we're exhorted as believers in James 1.22. James says that we should be doers of the word and not hearers only. Listen, deceiving yourself. The quickest path to self-righteousness, church, is to be a person whose head is full of Bible but whose heart is far from Christ. The quickest path to self-righteousness is to be a person whose head is full of Bible, but whose heart is full of Christ. It's to know the word of God inside and out, but never actually live it out. We deceive ourselves. We convince ourselves that it's maturity, but the reality is it's just a second childhood. True maturity is not just knowing the word of God. True maturity is doing the word of God. Verse four here, Jesus goes on to say of the Pharisees and the scribes, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So if you want to become a Pharisee, second, put impossible expectations on others. 
put impossible expectations on others. Now, the language that Jesus uses here would have uh, really drawn their minds and their attention to the beasts of burden in their culture. So just think like uh, donkeys and camels, animals that would be loaded up with equipment, uh, and and then they would just carry all this around. Now, uh, they were very, very careful with how they loaded up their animals, because if you overburden them, it could cause them to fall, they could be injured, they could potentially even die. And so this is Jesus's way of saying to the people and saying to the scribes and Pharisees, you care more about not injuring your animals than you do about not injuring the people of God. He said, you have greater concern for your donkeys, greater concern for your camels, greater concerns with not overburdening them, but you care nothing with how you overburden people. Oh, and by the way, the burdens you're imposing on them, you're not even willing to lift them yourselves. And so he calls them out because this is clear hypocrisy. They not only preached the laws in Moses, but they were also preaching their own rules and customs. They were upholding this as, as the single uh, way, the single path of righteousness. They equated their interpretations, their applications of the various laws as equally authoritative as the word of God. They were essentially adding to the Bible. They were taking what God had not put in there and put it in, themsel- uh, put it in themselves and then were binding people to those interpretations. R.C. Sproul has said that legalism binds people where God has left them free. Legalism creates standards, it creates rules, it creates applications and treats those rules and standards and applications as equally authoritative as the law that's given in the word of God itself. I'm just give you a few examples of this this morning. So you, know, you take Hebrews 10, for example, and it says very, very clearly uh, that we should do uh, what we are doing this morning. So good job. You're obeying Hebrews 10 this morning, right? Like we are gathering together. We should not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. It's a weird year to talk about gathering for church because some of us couldn't be here, but you're here today. And so we'll just, regular circumstances, non-COVID circumstances, uh, we should be gathering together for worship. That's a clear biblical principle. Like I don't see a lot of wiggle room in that. It says we should not get into the habits of, of not gathering together. But then this is what legalism will do. It will condemn you for missing a Sunday for any reason whatsoever. It'll overburden you and, and, and say, listen, hey, you got family in town, forget it. You better be at church. Like you're traveling out of town, you better find a church to go to. Like if, if you're, you're, you're missing for any reason whatsoever, it brings this message of condemnation. Again, there's a clear biblical principle. We should gather, but the scripture says we should not get into the habit of doing this. It should not just be regular that we wake up and say, hey, I don't really need to gather today. We shouldn't be doing this. But scripture doesn't condemn us if there's going to be a moment where it's like, hey, it's just not going to happen today for one reason or another. So you have to be very, very careful not to impose that standard. Again, scripture gives us clear instruction uh, that we should dress modestly. Now, this is a, a church culture that I was into and some of you, I mean, you've come out of as well by the, by the, to the praise of God, is, is they take that uh, definition of modesty and they'll interpret that to mean Sunday morning like, like, like this is a no-go in their land. Like I had a tie on last week, good, but still didn't have a jacket. So it probably wasn't, probably still a no-go last week even. And it was, hey, men, you got to be in the suit and ties. Women, floor-length skirts, no jewelry, no makeup, no braided hair, nothing to draw attention to yourself. And it takes that man-made definition of modesty and it imposes it as the real standard. Scripture's clear that children should be raised by their parents, that their parents are our primary disciplers within their home, that they should be raised uh, by their parents to uh, be discipled toward faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And what many will take that to mean is that when it comes to school, you've got two options. You can homeschool your kids or you can send them to Christian school, but you better forget about public school. And then to boot, it typically adds women, you better be staying in the house. 
And so we'll take these man-centered convictions and add them to the word of God and treat them as equally authoritative as the word of God. Scripture clearly prohibits drunkenness. Do not be drunk with wine. What legalism will say is you are not a faithful follower of Jesus if you have a drink at all. That is imposing a standard that has not been imposed in the word of God. That could be a deeply held personal conviction. Scripture's clear that's a matter of conscience. That's a matter of wisdom. We should have good, fruitful discussion as believers about whether or not we should, but we cannot, even in the deepest conviction, lay down a standard and call it God's standard when it's not. We have to be so very careful that we do not, with the very best of desires, find ourselves adding to the word of God. My mom used to tell this story uh, when we were kids about a church that she had grown up in where uh, a man came and visited one Sunday morning and uh, walked in the door a little bit disheveled, kind of had some beat up clothes, had longer hair, he had a beard. This was the 60s, you know, so you fill in the blanks on that. And so uh, he comes in the door and, uh, and, and so they give an invitation at the end of the service to respond to the gospel, just like we did last week. And so he comes forward and he prays with the pastor. And then after the service is over, they're standing up front and he introduces this man to the congregation. He says, he's come forward today. He wants to profess faith in Jesus Christ. Everybody celebrates that like we just did a second ago. Amen. And then this is the very next thing he said. He looks at the man and he says, well, I guess you're going to go get your hair cut now, aren't you? And quite understandably, that guy never came back. Praise God. I hope he found a good church. And this is what happens when we, this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 23, because a conviction like that, it's a bad interpretation of a scripture, like 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a bad, it usually starts with a bad interpretation of scripture by which we create this extremely legalistic, rigid standard, and then we uphold people to that standard. And if they can't keep the standard, we say they're not being faithful to Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus is condemning here in this particular passage. Church, we have to be so very careful as we hold deep convictions that we do not equate our convictions with the word of God itself, or we actually find ourselves in danger of adding to the word of God and inviting his judgment in our lives. It just breaks my heart. It makes me wonder how many people have not come to faith in Christ because we have upheld standards that aren't even in the Bible. In our zeal and our desire for people to be holy and to be righteous, sometimes we think we know better than the word of God. And so we find ourselves being guilty of adding to it. It's, it's nothing more that we call it maturity. It's nothing more than a second childhood because we make ourselves the standard of righteousness. Verses five through seven, Jesus goes on to say here, he says, the scribes and Pharisees, they do all their deeds to be seen by others for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So third, if you want to be a Pharisee, do everything you can to draw attention to yourself. Do everything you can to draw attention to yourself. Jesus said they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Now, you know, when you and I think about hypocrisy, we tend to think probably of a definition where uh, hypocrisy is being uh, where we say one thing, but then we do another. We do the opposite of what we said, and that can be a definition of hypocrisy, but according to Jesus, hypocrisy is not just saying one thing and doing another. Hypocrisy is also doing the right thing, but doing it from the wrong motivation. This is what happens uh, as Jesus addresses in Matthew chapter six. He, he talks about giving, he talks about praying, and he talks about fasting. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. These were three pillars of Jewish religious faith. So the problem in this culture was not that these people were not giving. 
The problem wasn't that they weren't praying. The problem wasn't that they weren't fasting. They did those things way more religiously than we do today. That wasn't the issue. They weren't doing things. The issue, Jesus said, was that they were doing those things to be seen by others. And it calls this hypocrisy. It's not just saying one thing and doing another. It's saying, or excuse me, it's, it's doing the right thing, but doing it from the wrong motivation. Jesus said of the scribes and Pharisees, they wore their phylacteries broad. Phylacteries were these small leather boxes that contained passages of scripture on the inside, and they wore them uh, on these, basically these hats and these headdresses that uh, they dangled down right in front of their eyes. And so they wore these broad. They were big and pronounced because they wanted people to see it on their heads. This was a literal fulfillment of Deuteronomy eleven eighteen to wear the word of God as frontlets between your eyes. That's what they were doing. Jesus said they kept their fringes long. Numbers 15, we know of the priestly garments. They wore these fringes, these tassels on their garments as a reminder to the people to be faithful to the word of God. Jesus said they made these long and pronounced. They literally wore their self-righteousness on their clothing. Everything they did was to be seen by others. They were seeking the praise of man, not the praise of God. Jesus goes on to say this in verses 8 through 10 about their self-seeking attention. He said, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. So if you want to do, be a Pharisee and forth, seek personal glory through positions of honor. And the word rabbi just really means simply my Lord. And it applied to those who taught the law. But Jesus is saying here, do not seek the honor that comes from the title. Don't seek titles just because it's going to give you a specific position of honor. He said, you have one father and it's your heavenly father. You have one teacher and it's the Christ. You have one master and it's me. Now, I've experienced this personally. I hope you haven't experienced this before, but I actually had a conversation with someone right after the first service who said this was their exact experience. Man, I've, I've engaged with pastors, with ministry leaders. Uh, you walk up and you call them by their first name. They will actually correct you on the spot with their title. It's reverend. It's pastor, it's bishop, it's doctor. I'm like, bro, you can't fix no broken bone. I mean, it's correct. I mean, on the spot, it's like, no, you will address me by my appropriate title. Listen, it's not that we shouldn't honor people. It's not that it's wrong to call people from titles, but this is the exact type of self-righteousness that Jesus is condemning. It's drawing the attention to yourself. It's demanding that people recognize you for who you are and for what you've done. And Jesus speaks against this. When we are so puffed up and conceited that we think people are just supposed to come to us and, and just sort of grovel at their feet and completely change their behavior, this is what partly fosters this extremely toxic culture of fundamentalism and legalism as we create these class distinctions. You know, I, I just want to share this a little bit from my heart this morning. Um, and I'll just say it like this today. One of the very best gifts that you could give to me personally, you could give to members of our staff, that you could give to our elders, you know what the very best gift is you could give us? Treat us like completely normal human beings. I mean, for goodness sake, like if we're coming to your house, please don't give your kids the speech, you better behave because the pastor's coming over. Please. And, and, and listen, I'd say that kind of jokingly, but also seriously, do you, you think for just a second what type of perception that creates in the mind of a child? A pastor, a minister, religious leaders coming over, I have to put on a front. I have to fake it. 
I've got to be a completely different person. I can't be who I am. That These are small, indirect messages that we pour into the minds of kids. Goodness sake, like if we're out somewhere, we're playing golf, like we're throwing Frisbee, we're playing basketball, like if you cuss around me, don't apologize. And I won't apologize when I cuss around you. Okay, like that'll be a two-way street. It's a little confession this morning, guys. I love Jesus, but I cuss a little too, okay? Like, like, don't put us on the pedestal. Like, we don't want to be put on the pedestal. This is us saying, treat us like normal human beings because when we create these class distinctions within the body of Christ, it breeds this type of culture. And listen to what Peter writes in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We just sang this a moment ago, and I think it's one of the most beautiful truths that we have in all of Scripture. 1 Peter 2, 9. Peter writes, you, this is the whole body of Christ, whole body of Christ. He says, you are a chosen race. Read these next three words with me. A royal priesthood. This is all of us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and in to his marvelous light. This is the good news of the gospel this morning because we have a perfect final high priest in Jesus Christ, who was also the perfect sacrificial lamb for our sins. It's through faith in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ. You, me, all of us, we are a kingdom of priests before God. Isn't that good news? There are no more class distinctions within the body of Christ. It's the best gift you can give to our leadership here. Treat us like completely normal people. Because the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all come to Jesus, sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior equally for all. Jesus closes this out in verses 11 and 12, saying, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So if you really want to become a Pharisee, last we see this morning, exalt yourself and refuse to serve. According to Jesus, greatness is not measured. This is an upside-down economy in his kingdom. I mean, he just flips the whole system on its head. According to Jesus, greatness is not measured by the number of people you have working for you, by the number of people serving you. Greatness is measured by the number of people you're willing to serve, to empty yourself and to pour yourself out. As C.S. Lewis has written so well, of humility. He said, if anyone would like to acquire humility, this is pretty simple. He says, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer, or better looking than others. If, every, if everyone else became equally rich, or clever, or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And I think we just need that warning again this morning from Proverbs 16, that pride, church, that is the sin that comes before destruction. Pride comes before the fall. And so guys, our, our response this morning, it's so very simple. Jesus gives it to us here in verse 12. Our response is to humble ourselves. It's to humble ourselves. Church, we do not get our righteousness horizontally by looking at each other. 
Like you can, you can know the Bible inside and out. You can know doctrine. You can be well-versed in theology. You can have all of the head knowledge in the world. You can have it all. Have a heart that's far from Jesus. I mean, just missing it completely. And it's so deceiving. When we equate our knowledge to spiritual maturity, the reality is many of us might still be in infancy in our faith because we know it in our heads, but we've never believed it in our hearts, and we've definitely never lived it with our hands. And listen, we do not just want to be a church that preaches the gospel doctrine. We want to be a church that builds a gospel culture. We're not going to add to the Word of God. We're going to trust that the Word of God is sufficient just as it is. And again, I feel for some of you this morning because this was my background as well. Like many of you grew up in these extremely restrictive environments. I mean, just totally devoid of joy. And freedom to Christ is offered to you, but the issue is when you've been in that your whole life and you finally jump out, man, you're like a fish out of water and you gotta learn to breathe again. And Jesus invites you to breathe in him, to find freedom, to to take the pressure off of yourself, to stop applying the pressure to others, to measure up to something that we could never measure up to ourselves. But here's the good news of the gospel. We don't have to measure up because Jesus measured up for us. The righteousness that we could never be ourselves, Jesus Christ has perfectly been for us on our behalf. And so I just challenge us over these next five, six weeks to be a people. Church, let's humble ourselves. Humble ourselves. Let's be a culture of love and of grace and of mercy as we cling to the truth of God's word. We can rescue the church from from this rigid mission, this new legalism that is so badly demonstrating the name of Jesus Christ to our world and to our culture today. We have the opportunity to shine the light in the midst of that darkness. So you just bow your heads with me this morning as we close our time together. Um, We're going to prepare our hearts and our minds to come to the table for the Lord's Supper. And as we come to the table for communion this morning, man, this is our ultimate reminder that we are only made righteous through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It does not matter how well you can keep the rules. None of it even scratches the surface of the depth of our sin. But what's so good for us today is that Jesus has paid the price for our sin. Debt we could never pay on our own. Been paid in full by Jesus at the cross. So as we just enter into a moment here of confession, of repentance, of turning from sin, of purging, is confronting the brokenness that's in our lives. I just really want to press in and ask you this morning, where, where might you be guilty of some self-righteousness? Where are you prone to look down on others because they might not look up, they might not live up to your preferred standard of what a follower of Jesus looks like? Where are you just prone to self-righteousness? And where do you need to be reminded that you too were once were dead in your sins? But for the goodness of God, if it weren't for Christ, you would still be dead in your sins. But in his grace, he's raised you to new life. And maybe you just need to recover that joy of salvation today. But listen, some of you this morning, again, my heart breaks for you because you have been in these environments and you feel like you have spent your life in chains. And the invitation to you over these next several weeks is for your chains of religion to be broken 
and to find power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to find freedom in life in his name. So fathers, we come to the table this morning as we remember the broken body and shed blood of your son Jesus as we continue to confess sin, to reflect and to respond. Lord, would you be glorified in the movement of your people? Father, as we stand and sing, as we come to the table, as we reflect on the word that was just preached, as it goes into our hearts, Father, I pray that we would not just be people who know these things in our heads, but live them out in our lives. We would not just preach gospel doctrine, but we would develop a gospel culture within the life of this congregation. 